0: In March of 1985, Brazil's dictatorship collapsed and the country was in political turmoil. The burning in the Amazon reached a frenzied pace as ranchers and developers rushed to capitalize on the chaos, leveling trees and displacing Amazonian communities at an unprecedented rate. There was a new level of pressure on Chico Mendes, the rubber tappers, and the indigenous populations in Acre. And violence in the Amazon was at an all time high, with criminal groups like the Alves family reaching the height of their firepower and political influence. It was a perilous time. That was when Chico met an American anthropologist named Stephen Schwartzman.
1: Now, I first met Chico Mendes at the first national meeting of rubber tappers in Brasilia in October of 1985. And I came as uh, an anthropologist who had worked with indigenous peoples in the Amazon and was beginning to become involved with international uh, environmental initiatives. And it was a real revelation, I have to say.
0: Over the next few years, Steven became one of Chico's most important allies and greatest friends from outside Brazil, alongside Brazilian anthropologist Mary Allegretti. When Mary and Stephen came onto the scene, Chico was at the top of his game. He'd recently formed new relationships with indigenous groups and fully galvanized the people of the forest into a unified front. He was no longer rolling with the punches, but delivering his own, organizing protests and events in Brazil's big cities like Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, where he received the key to the city. Chico recognized that his strongest suit was not poetry or statesmanship, never grandstanding or pushing his weight around, but thoughtfully organizing. He had become an expert diplomat, the person who could round people up and get them talking. Most importantly, he could get them to act.
1: Shekel uh, was the nicest guy you could ever want to meet. It took me a long time, and I think long after his death, to begin to appreciate the subtlety and sophistication and power of his political vision for the Amazon. Uh, At the time, I guess, it seemed almost natural, but uh, looking back, Chico was a very brilliant guy, and I'm very honored to have known him and been able to work with him.
0: Stephen began to recognize the power and influence that Chico could have on the whole world, not just Brazil, and proposed a number of international trips.
1: I explained the opportunity and said, look, we managed to work through the Congress, the Treasury Department, to get the World Bank to suspend this loan. I think something like that uh, could work with the IDB's project in Akere. But if you come with us and help set this off, what's that going to mean for you? Is this going to put you in more danger than you're already in? And Shiko immediately re- uh, responded, look, what's going on here is a war. It can't get any worse. Let's go. Wow. So we did.
2: Welcome to Wildfire, a six-part podcast series about fire in the world's natural spaces. In this season, we're looking at the fires in the Amazon rainforest and the story of Chico Mendes. I'm your host, Graham Zimmerman, joined by Jim Aikman. In the last episode, we learned about the incredible relationship that the indigenous communities in the Amazon have had with the forest for thousands of years. We then saw it firsthand when we visited the Surui people. Finally, we heard about how Chico Mendes formed an alliance between the rubber tappers and the indigenous people, putting to rest hundreds of years of hostility between their communities and uniting them against the developers. In this episode, Chico will take all of his skills, connections, and ideas to the end of the line, traveling the world and making change. We'll also meet his youngest daughter, Elenira Mendes, and Jim and I will be back in Chaparee looking for a better understanding of the events that led up to Chico's murder. Thanks for joining us on episode 5 of Wildfire.
0: It didn't take long for Chico to fully commit to Stephen's travel proposal and started scheduling his first trips abroad. From 1985 to 1988, he was exposed to new ideas by scientists and activists from around the world who introduced him to the notion of environmentalism, the idea of protecting the forest as a necessary part of preserving the entire planet's healthy ecosystems. Chico's new indigenous allies had approached the forest this way for millennia and shared much of this wisdom with him but it was a new idea to the tappers. Until then, Chico really only considered himself a humanitarian, but now he realized how much bigger the world was than his local rubber estates and how valuable that message would be for bringing support from the rest of the world. He needed the environmentalists, and they needed him. Chico was finally ready to save the forests themselves and not just the people in them. In his book, he wrote, I became an ecologist long before I ever heard the word. This new breakthrough allowed him to tap into environmental organizations such as the National Wildlife Federation and their half a billion dollar budget, which was a lot in 1985. That really changed the way that people in Brazil think about
1: deforestation. And it sort of it helped to, you know, to catapult the, the issue of uh, deforestation in the Amazon to international prominence. It's fitting. uh, that people are concerned about the burning of the Amazon is uh, an issue of global importance, just as emissions from the U.S. transport sector or energy sector is uh, an issue of global importance. I mean, we only have one atmosphere on this planet, and we need to work together to save it.
0: Of course, and reading about in the 80s with international banks, U.S. banks, Basically, financing the deforestation in the, in the Amazon is just
3: horrific.
1: Yeah, that was one piece of what, what was going on. It was certainly a piece that uh, we focused on quite closely because we felt that it gave us some, some leverage and some, some influence.
0: Chico began traveling constantly, spending more time abroad than he was on his beloved rubber trails.
1: I had been working with several environmental organizations in the U.S. on these internationally financed development projects, including a road that was being financed by the Inter-American Development Bank in Ake. And so we saw the opportunity to influence that project by bringing Chico to the Inter-American Development Bank's annual meeting in Miami in 1987.
0: Shiko went to Washington, D.C. to speak with Democratic senators and the United States Senate Finance Committee. He met with executive directors at the Bank of Japan and the Bank of Sweden. He was warmly received in England by lawmakers and diplomats. And he received the Protection of the Environment Medal from the Better World Society, grants from the Ford Foundation and Gaia Foundation, and he was featured in world publications like The New Yorker.
1: One trip to Nairobi to receive the United Nations Global 500 Environmental Award in 86, if I'm not mistaken, and in 87, he was in uh, the
0: U.S. twice. The world was starting to notice Chico Mendez. This was no longer the game of checkers that he played with his bodyguards back home. This was chess, strategically positioning the media, big banks, and environmental groups on his board. And he did all of this under the looming threat of the Alves family. As Chico's star was rising on the international stage, the opposite was happening back home. Things were disintegrating. His new environmental message that was so popular outside of Brazil had become ironically too radical for the cautious leadership in Brasilia, even on the left. To make matters worse, Chico's earnest and genuine character made it very difficult for him to lie or even bend the truth, which made politicking tricky, with no room for subterfuge. On top of all of that, things were not so good on the domestic front. According to his wife, Ilsemar, their marriage had come under tremendous strain. Chico and Ilsemar had two children, Elenira and Sandino, who both needed their father to be around. He had a hard time being there for everybody in his life that needed him. He was spread too thin. He was also flat broke. He'd stopped tapping rubber, which meant he was no longer walking the long miles and doing the hard labor that kept him fit. He'd begun to put on weight and continued to chain smoke heavily. These years were hard on Chico. And yet, many of his friends recalled that they'd never seen him as happy as he was after these international trips. He was really making a difference and had big plans for the future. There was a lot left to do. But all of this attention on Chico, and all the actual changes he was starting to make, were becoming a thorn in the side of developers and ranchers that they could no longer afford to ignore. Steven Schwartzman and Mary Allegretti hoped that Chico's fame would keep him safe, but it wasn't that simple. Outlaws in the middle of the Amazon don't exactly read The New Yorker.
1: We had hoped that international media exposure would help to protect Chico. And,
0: uh, of course, we ended up being wrong. When the Inter-American Development Bank halted construction on the new highway, the developers had Chico to blame. They were enraged that a quote-unquote illiterate rubber tapper could disrupt their financial interests. And this all trickled down to the Alves family, the enforcers. They put Chico on notice. His days were numbered.
2: In 1988, while Chico was traveling around the globe and as he wielded his new power to create change, his perspective had shifted. He saw the power and importance of his life's work. He shared, at first I thought I was fighting to save the rubber trees. Then I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now I realize I'm fighting for humanity. He was able to see the big picture what was at stake, and the economic drivers pushing forward the destruction of the rainforest. He saw the forest that was being gouged out and burned back, not just as a place where the tappers and indigenous lived, but also the world's largest and most biologically diverse wilderness, with more kinds of fish than there are in the Atlantic, and no fewer than 319 kinds of hummingbird. He could also see that in the 1980s, much of it was being completed to make room for cows being grown for beef. But it's important to know that this didn't compute economically, since this area was importing more beef than it was exporting. In research uncovered by journalists, it was found that the real reason for the forest being destroyed was so that ranchers could claim huge government incentives. But at the same time, Acre, Chico Mendes's home, had become, in the words of a reporter from Sao Paulo, a state of agony big banks based in Brazil, but backed by international consortiums, had bought up huge tracts of land. Banco Real had bought 500,000 acres, and the Grupo Bradesco bought 750,000 acres. These banks burned it to the ground. And Chico saw that the tappers were not alone in their plight. The Hunaikuan Indians were expelled from their traditional homeland after being issued negative certificates from the government. Shortly after, bulldozers and chainsaws moved in. Intentions tensions were high back in Chaparri. More specifically, trouble was brewing at the Cachoeira Rubber Estate, where Chico grew up. Jim and I had visited the estate on our trip, and today it was only inhabited by a small number of rubber tappers, many of whom were relatives of Chico. But in 1988, there were 60 rubber tapper families living on the estate. It was a thriving hub in the Chaparri area. This made it a prime target for developers, ranchers, and the Alvez crime family. And Darley Darlie Alves knew about Chico's history with Cachoeira and how many families still lived there at the time. He knew how important it was to the livelihoods of those families, and how visible it was to the community. He knew all of that, which was exactly why he made it a target. In 1988, Darlie Alves showed up at Cachoyera with a handful of henchmen claiming that they had the rightful deed to the land. They had bought it, and the tappers all needed to vacate. The tappers refused. Darley tried persuasion, offering the tappers 500 acres that they could keep free of charge, throwing in a brand new chapel to sweeten the deal. The tappers refused. Darley tried using the courts, filing legal appeals, bringing lawyers to the estate with eviction orders. Again, the tappers refused. Chico had been largely absent from Cachoeira because of his travel schedule. But when Darley showed up with crooked cops and chainsaws, Chico headed home. He entered the fray with a few hundred more tappers, and they began the Cachoeira Empache, a protest barricade that lasted more than a month. 159 people from 80 different families came from all over the Amazon to help Cachoeira stand its ground. Three more times, Darley showed up with armed men to confront the tappers, and three more times they were turned away. All of these confrontations remained nonviolent, thanks to Chico's calm energy. At one point, Darley actually met with Chico in person and tried to convince him with a veiled threats and a cash buyout. Chico refused to even shake his hand, saying that he would, quote, never shake a dishonest hand. Then, came the final standoff at Cachoeira. Darley returned with a dozen police officers who approached the estate with guns drawn. The tappers built a wall of men, women, and children at the entrance to the estate, and the stage was set for a massacre. But then something incredible happened. The children began singing the Brazilian national anthem. Their parents joined in, and then the police started singing and lowered their weapons pacified by the reminder that they were all Brazilians. There was a dialogue, and the police left peacefully.
1: Chico organized uh, demonstrations, the kind that he had done frequently in the past, to stop Darli's hired hands from clearing that rubber estate, and they succeeded in stopping them. And then they got the government to agree to expropriate uh, the land, uh, in principle, just to create an extractive reserve.
2: Ultimately, Chico won the battle for Cachoeira, and the Alveses left. In fact, at this point in 1988, Chico and his allies had successfully moved most of the deforestation out of the Chaparri area. The same couldn't be said for the rest of the Amazon, but at least for now, they were winning the fight in Chaparri. But it would not last. Cachoeira was the last straw for the Alves family.
1: When that happened, Darli swore that he was gonna kill Chico.
0: Following the in Pache, the Alvezes hired 30 new gunmen and began a reign of terror in Chaparri. It wasn't uncommon to see 20 gunmen at a time on the streets, reminding everyone who was really in charge. I lived in front of that little square there. When I opened the window in the morning from May 1988, every day there were two gunslingers just sitting there in the square, and two in front of the Union,
3: always. And
0: Darcy was always one of them. He was always in front of the union during the year 88. He sat there with his revolver peeking out of his shirt. The ranchers held a meeting in Rio Branco, the city outside of Chaparri, where a pot of money was raised to have Chico killed. And at these meetings, even people from the federal police were there arguing that they had to kill Chico Mendez. Chico's death was officially anunciado, But Chico was stubborn. He picked up a few more bodyguards, but he wouldn't leave town. He said to a friend, I would be a coward to do this. My blood is the same blood as that of these people suffering here. I cannot run. There's something inside me that cannot leave here. This is the place where I will finish my mission.
1: The second time when I met him, he was there's so much tension, you know. Like,
0: that's Denise Zmechel, who was making a film about Chico during this tumultuous time. Imagine
1: like knowing that you're gonna be killed. That there's no way you're not gonna be killed, and and the kids are very small, and he was very close to his kids, you know, they're always all over him, and that's. Why, when he called and said, You know, I'm not going to leave here, and I was like, No, you, we need your life. You know, you you, you have kids, you have family, but you also have this struggle that, you know, is going to be much harder without you.
0: Chico's 44th birthday party was on December 15th, 1988, and he was the happiest he'd been in months. Chico's daughter, Elenira, told us about it in her own words. on December 15th, he was going to a surprise party at a friend's house, just above our house in Chaparri. And then he gathered with my mother, me, and Sandino. And in the room, he hugged the three of us and said, This is probably the last birthday I spend with you. But I hope you have strength, that you don't cry, and that you move on. So he already felt that he was going to be murdered.
3: Okay. here. we are. <laughs> <Estamos aqui. laughs> aqui. Obrigado. Obrigado.
0: Back in the modern day, Graham and I met Gomercindo Rodriguez in Chaparri, at the house where Chico lived with his family in the 1980s. We were joined by our guide and translator, Lyleson.
3: Yeah, that's the, that's the house uh, It's really crazy and surreal to be here after spending the last six months reading about this place and studying what happened at this house 32 years ago. Tell has that again. Going around the back of Chico's house, wants us to follow him. It's uh, emotional to, to be here with you. to mais que foi um fato triste. Thank you. Yeah, being here with Gomesindo is I don't know, it's hard to even put into words because we've heard so much about what happened here a long time ago and it was very violent and sad and to be here with Gomesindo, who's still clearly, you know, feeling that emotion um, and to just use my imagination of Everything that happened here 32 years ago is really amazing.
1: Well, I feel very emotional, actually and really sad. I'm learning about more how it happens the Chico Mendes murder. It's really sad.
3: Yeah, gente, fez aqui como uma this place as the spot where Chico Mendes was murdered. There's a, there's a bañero, a bathroom, outhouse where Chico was going to take a shower when he was shot. But
0: Darcy Alves and an accomplice hid in a small gully beside Chico's house. Nobody knows exactly how long they were camped out, but it could have been a month or more. Darley was raised by generations of hunters, so he was an expert at concealment, crouching like a tiger in the shadows, waiting for his prey.
1: He e was a little bit too um, He was e a little bit too far away. When he was able to get the flashlight, he received the flashlight. When you turn the guy shot him. That door right there? Yes. That door. It's a little window. Ah,
3: over here? Yes.
0: Darcy fired a 20 gauge shotgun at Chico from about 30 feet away.
1: Me acert- ah, the police were screaming and saying they shot me.
2: They shot me.
0: Chico stumbled back into the house where his wife Ilsemar, his son Sandino, and his youngest daughter Elenira watched in horror as he collapsed on the floor, covered in blood. Unfortunately, the only memory I have of my father today that I've kept my whole life was from the moment he was murdered, and it was something that was really marked into my memory because we were at home and we followed his last moments in which he was shot and fell by our bedroom door so we ran and gripped onto him I remember him trying to say my name unfortunately I've had to live my whole life with this memory he tried to say elenira to speak my name and so to this day I still don't know what he meant to say my mother also has this memory and then she told him not to worry that she was going to take care of the kids and that was it. He died trying to speak my name. Wow. Tell her I'm sorry. A gente sente muito por isso, Renira. After five other attempts on Chico's life and countless other murders in the Amazon, Chico Mendes took his last breath on the evening of December 22nd, 1988 in Chapari, Brazil. And I see that I have it as a great example of life, of courage. I don't think I could have had a better example than my father, who donated his life. Because he knew he was going to die, and at no point did he run away or back off. He faced with great honor his enemies those who wanted to destroy our forests. And for me today, I managed to turn all the pain into motivation to always do something for the Amazon, always do something for the people of the forest. And that's very important. Thank God I managed to reverse all the pain into hope and believe in a better world, a better future where people can truly have environmental awareness and know, in fact, the importance of preserving the forest. Chico Mendes was gone. But what had he left behind?
2: When Chico was killed, members of the global community, including Steve Schwartzman, showed up at Chaparri. They were there to mourn and to remember their friend. He was someone that they had both believed in and looked up to. The definition of a martyr is a person who sacrifices something of great value and especially life itself for the sake of a principle. And this was certainly what Chico had become, but no one knew what would come of that sacrifice and no one could have expected what would happen next. In our next and final episode, We will uncover what happened after Chico's death and answer the questions, would he have a lasting influence? Would the rainforest be saved? And would justice be served? The podcast Wildfire Season 2 is a production of REI Co-op Studios, Bedrock Filmworks, and Podpeak. The show is written and produced by Jim Aikman, and myself, Graham Zimmerman, with additional production support from Chelsea Davis at REI. Editing, sound design, and theme music are by Evan Phillips.